Welcome, beloved listeners, to this special edition of LNL, which tonight could be called Late Night Lagos, because that's where we're heading, after a city so big, its population outnumbers London, New York and Uruguay combined. And I want to kick off by reading you a wonderful description of the city, penned by our first guest tonight, Depot Faloyan. He writes, Lagos is loud and plagued by joy. It sounds like impatience and over-familiarity. It moves like a culture built on faith and certainty being the same thing. It's stitched to the same vague tones of a dream, where imagination seems to outpace movement and progress is grounded in intention, if not reality. Lagos has highs of 40 degrees and lows of persistent power cuts. Its vistas are framed by large palm trees and an almost 100% black demographic. Every day, the piercing sun sprays across its natural grey filter through a swarm of bright yellow buses and sticks to what science believes to be the happiest people on earth. End of quote. Now, later, the author, Alosa Sunday is going to introduce us to some of the larger-than-life characters that call this marvellous city home. But first, after a little bit of music, we talk to Depot about why Africa is not a country. In a 2009 TED Talk, the uh, Nigerian novelist uh, Shamanda Adichie warned us of the dangers of perpetuating a single story. Her talk has been viewed over 30 million times, yet still, when movies are released or news stories break on the continent, we're presented with pretty much the same simplistic stereotypes of Africa. Now, in his new book, journalist and writer Deepo Faloyan sets out to change that. He points out that Africa is a continent of 54 countries, more than 2,000 languages, and a population almost identical to that of China and India. And he reminds us that many of these countries are still working with the cards that they were dealt with as a result of colonialism and the continued interference of Western nations ever since. His book is called Africa is Not a Country, Breaking Stereotypes of Modern Africa, and it's a marvellous read. Despite the seriousness of the subject, it can also be very, very funny. Welcome to the program. Your book is deeply personal, and you begin by writing about your own hometown, if that's the right term for Lagos, which is uh, the continent's most populous city. Take us there. Well, firstly, thank you so much for having me. Um, It's such a privilege to be here today. Um, And yes, I start by talking about my family and my hometown. Um, Firstly, because I think that it's incredibly important when we want to build connections with people to to do so on a personal level, to see ourselves in their lives, to imagine ourselves in their their environment. Um, And the point of this book is to, to illustrate that, you know, Africa is a very place as varied as anywhere else in the world. And so, you know, to show that I wanted to take everyone to to Lagos, which is probably in, in my mind, uh, 
truly one of a kind sort of place. Um, it makes very little sense uh, in terms of how the city is run, how it's governed. Um, it's about 20 million people, as I write, unburdened by self-doubt. Um, <laughs> they were just trying trying their hardest to, to make their day-to-day -day work um, in a city with very few, very few rules. And yet it does seem to work. Um, it's a beautiful place, incredibly special to, to me and my family. I talk about your book being funny. You say traffic is the city, the city's official sport, <laughs> and thinking small is a sin, as is arriving anywhere on time. Yes, I mean, thinking small is certainly a sin because in Lagos, you know, the hustle is real. It's there for you to, everyone in there is trying to make it in a place that has very few, very few actual rules. Um, and so, you know, uh, unfortunately, the lack of rules means that traffic is a constant burden in the city. And to drive around the city um, really every day is to is to put your life in the hands of other people who have very little interest in, <laughs> in your safety. So, um, yeah, that, that really, really does sum up uh, what Lagos is all about. Now, tell us a bit about your family. You say that in your home, silence was the ultimate <laughs> punishment. We are, we're a big, boisterous family. We like to, we say discuss, but really it's argue about it, anything and everything. You know, every, everything is, is up for, uh, there, there needs to be consensus on, on big issues and small issues. Um, and so, you know, everyone at any moment is ready to give their opinion to everybody else's opinion. But uh, when, when that opinion is not forthcoming, then you know that, that you've done something wrong. Um, you know, it, it, when, when the home is silent, then, then something is wrong. To understand what's happening on the continent today, yeah, we need to look back at how the countries were created, and I quote, by people with poor maps and even poorer morals. So tell us about the Berlin Conference, please. Yep, yeah, so in 1884, the major colonial powers of the day gathered in Berlin to decide how they were going to carve up Africa. Um, now, they didn't do this thinking about the welfare of the people on the ground. Their main concern was that they would go to war with each other. You know, if they were fighting over pieces of land, um, you know, France and, 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 and Britain might, might decide to go to war over uh, Central Africa, for example. You know, they had very little idea what was on the continent. Um, and so they wanted to avoid all-out war with each other. They, they didn't really care about the lives of the, of the teachers and the poets and the artists and the, and the doctors on the ground throughout the continent. Um, their main concern was about their own personal welfare. So they all gathered in Berlin in 1884 in the home of the then Chancellor, and they decided to set some ground rules. I've got as to, how I've got to put a name up. to him, Otto von Bismarck, for heaven's sake. Yes, Otto von Bismarck, um, who gathered everyone there, and, and they all just set out some ground rules you know, on how you could claim a piece of land for yourself. Um, they didn't necessarily care about the morality of it. You know, they decided that it was within their right to do so, that Africans were uncivilized people um, and that what they were offering to them, um, which they claimed was civilization, commerce and Christianity, would turn these uncivilized Africans into civilized people. And so it was in the best interest of Africans that they would come and they would um, completely and utterly take over their land. And so the aim of the Berlin Conference was to set out the ground rules. And the ground rules basically said that you can arrive, you can plant a flag, and you had to show that you had some control over the local population. Um, that can either be by total brute force, 
or it can be by manipulating the, uh, certain kings and queens into signing contracts that would give away their land for eternity. I'm reminded of Churchill in a moment of almost indifference creating Iraq. There's, there's a 16-foot map of what mm. you'd call topographic nonsense <laughs> outlined by men <laughs> who'd never set foot in 90% of the African continent. They'd never been there. They'd been onto the outskirts and they'd, they'd understandably found incredible treasures. And so they figured, you know, there must be much more wonderful things in the inside, um, which there were. And so they, they had no idea of what they were drawing. Um, and that continued up until these countries were drawn. You know, one of the most important things that people should remember is these are man-made countries. Um, they make very little sense. They were not created for... Uh, the well-being of the local population. Forgive me for interrupting, but the, the opposite was true because different ethnic groups and cultures are forced to become a nation and uh, over and over again, the setup is just destined for disaster. Yeah, it, it was designed for disaster. Um, you know, about 10% of all ethnic groups were broken up. About 30% of all African borders are just straight lines, you know, and... I, you know, anyone who uh, would set out to draw uh, the borders of a country would consider the ethnic makeup of that country, who spoke which languages, who worshipped which gods, um, you know, which ethnic groups had a history of going to war with other ethnic groups. You know, these are the sort of considerations one might consider when they're trying to design a country. But, you know, none of this was in the the thinking of of the of the colonialists who came, you know, their aim was how can we extract as much resources as possible? Was it possible for countries as they gained independence to, to any extent, to redraw the maps? That was a key question during the independence era. You know, what, what should we do with these countries that on paper don't make any sense? They don't work. We are divided nations of multitude of ethnic groups. Um, and so after, uh, in sort of the early 1960s, there was an organization called the African, it's now the African Union, uh, met. And they, that was the first question, you know, should we try and redraw the whole thing? And the conclusion was that it would lead to more chaos. You know, what you'd end up having is bigger nations would get their sway over smaller nations. They would have their, you know, they would have their pick of of the, the the best land and the resources. And it, you know, that decision showed a lot of restraint. Um, countries like Nigeria, South Africa, Kenya, these comically large nations, the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, you know, they they would have benefited, whereas smaller countries would have certainly have suffered um, from this redrawing of the borders. But it also meant, of course, that uh, a place like Rwanda was just a, a time bomb which would eventually explode. Absolutely. Um, and we've, we've seen these exploding time bombs throughout the region. Um, and Rwanda is a great example of that. You know, um, you have ethnic groups who have spent the last few decades simply fighting for power. Um, and that's, that's what was left to these countries. I'm talking to uh, Dippo Falayan, author of Africa is Not a Country. It's interesting that your parents are older than the country they were born mm. in. It's remarkable, you know. Um, one thing we forget is that this is all recent history. Ni Nigeria, where we're from, um, you know, gained its independence in 1960. Um, and, you know, my parents are older than that. And, you know, these countries have had 
very little time, if any time really, to build a national identity for themselves. Um, and that's something that's just not really appreciated. You know, when people look at Africa, they think of famine and problems and devastation and disaster. But when you start to realize that these countries have had a very short time to, to work with nations that were not of their own doing, um, that, you know, then you start to see that in many cases, for certain countries, you know, this is a story of successes rather than failures. You make the point that in many cases independence was so recent that the figures who liberated them still run them and clearly they'd often be uh, better suited to the battlefield. Certainly. Um, you know, many countries, their founding fathers are not only still alive, but many of them are still fighting for power. Um, you know, these founding fathers were often military men, highly trained military men, who literally had to fight for their nation's independence. Um, and so when independence did come, you know, they felt like it was their right to govern. And many people agreed, you know, they, they had fought for their liberation in bloody difficult battles. Um, and so for a lot of people, they felt like it was their right to govern. Um, but unfortunately, in many cases, these men were not necessarily suited to, to you know, democratic governance where they were better suited to uh, the battlefield. You draw a link between the prevalence of dictatorships and Western interference. I guess that came from playing tribal groups against each other. Yeah, it was, it was designed that way. Especially Britain developed a policy of divide and rule to hold off independence. Um, they would take certain ethnic groups, they would favour one ethnic group over the other, they would, they would bribe unscrupulous men um, and give them power and status within their ethnic groups. And they would set them off other ethnic groups so that, the, you know, so that ethnic groups wouldn't work together um, to fight for independence. And, and what that created was, you know, a, a real love for power in many groups. And, and there was a realization that, you know, that without unity, it was simply just a fight for who can hoard as much resources for their own people as possible. People listening to our conversation will be surprised that despite all the talk of despots and dictators, less than 10% of the continent is under authoritarian rule. Yeah, I mean, this is something that we see all the time in depictions of, of Africa in popular culture, especially you know, there is this idea that this is a land that's completely overrun by warlords in four by fours, snatching children off the street. Um, and that just simply isn't the case, you know. At, at, the, at the time when these countries were formed, yeah, you know, they had democracies in many cases that didn't quite fit the makeup of the local population and their traditions and their beliefs, you know. Um, and, you know and, and that can create a certain rough patch where you're where you're swapping power um, quickly. But, you know, in that, in that time, a lot of nations have, the vast majority of countries, over 90%, have adopted forms of democracy and they're trying to make those democracies work. You know, this is not, uh, this is not a region that does not appreciate the importance of one man, one vote. Um, it's a place that has worked incredibly hard to, to develop systems of governance that suit their countries. You see Hollywood as the ringleader of, uh, well, popular cultures, lazy stereotypes. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's so easy to ingest these stereotypes when they're wrapped around entertainment specifically. Um, and that's certainly what we've seen in the years. You know, when you when you think of Hollywood's depiction of, of Africa, 
um, right back to films about like out of Africa, you know, normally Africans are in tribal groups and small villages, uh, you know, waiting for someone from the West to come in and save them. Um, you know, we, we very rarely see uh, complex, nuanced stories of, of, of love and of science and, you know, of, of, of incredible thinking, you know. What we often see are stories where, you know, I, I, one of the chapters is called There Is No Such Thing As An African Accent. Um, and, you know, I, I call it that because what we've come to expect from depictions of an African country is just this, this monolithic, uh, view of the region is, you know, everyone is struggling, suffering, waiting to be saved by a great hero from the West who comes to liberate them. You cite the uh, the twenty eighteen blockbuster Black Panther. Why? More because of the intent of the film. You know, the film really tried to depict a country that was independent, that stood on its own. Um, that was specific, you know, they, they tried with with the accents and the language and the dress and the specific cultures of Wakanda to try and depict somewhere that was that was free and had its own destiny in its own hands. Um, and that imagining is incredibly important because it's so rare to see. Um, and it's not, it's not to say that, you know, that's the only way that the continent should be depicted. Again, you know, Africa is any, can be anything and everything. You know, it can be stories of great triumph. It can be stories of great struggle and everything that might exist in between that. It can be funny, it can be sad, um, and I think that that's, the intention is incredibly important to try and depict things with as much nuance and specificity as possible. Deepo, you introduce us to the late uh, Kenyan activist and author, mm. uh, Binyavanga Wanana, who did a fantastic job of calling this out. Absolutely, you know, and... Um, he he wrote a brilliant piece um, many years ago called How to Write About Africa, which was a satire. Um, and that focused on kind of literature and the way books have long depicted the continent. Um, and he, he was he was brilliant. You know, he was someone who used humor um, to push back against these harmful stereotypes, you know, which I which I try and, and, and replicate in the book. Um, because I think it's just a really important way to make it clear to people the absurdity of the way in which the world has long uh, depicted Africa. I love the angry email he sent to uh, to yeah. Granta after they yeah. published an yeah. African issue, which had nothing written by anyone actually from the continent. Let me let me quote from How to yeah. Write About Africa: Never have a picture of a well-adjusted African on the cover of your book or in it, unless that African has won the Nobel Prize, an AK-47, prominent ribs, naked breasts, use these. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, and many of your listeners will immediately be able to picture, um, you know, the, 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 the stark um, images that are constantly pushed of, of the region. And, you know, it's almost just stock imagery at this point. Um, and it was brilliant, you know, and he contacted the the editors of Granter and, you know, he, he pointed out how ridiculous it was and um, to have an African issue that had nobody from Africa um, giving their views on the region, you know, <laughs> and, and thankfully they they responded with the, the right amount of grace and, and, you know, at least in their case, they tried to they try to work against that. Time to tell us about the white saviour complex, please, Deepa. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is something that we see in, um, especially in the development industry um, and charities, this idea that 
that you know only goodness can come to Africa when it's presented by a, a white person. You know this idea that um, Africa is a region that is sitting around suffering um, in pain, um, and there is this obsession to place uh, you know the Western world in the center of that as the great saviors of the region. Um, and we've seen that. You know I use this example of you know Kony 2012 which is this year marks the 10 year, 10 year anniversary of Kony 2012 and the imagery that was used in that film that tried to call for western intervention to capture one individual in Uganda who wasn't even in Uganda at the time um and I talk about it because the imagery can be incredibly harmful to these countries you know this when people think about Africa these are the images that come up in their minds of, of suffering, of, of pain, of, of malnourished children. Um, and when that is all that people think about, they lose sight of, of this region. They, lose, they, they, it's, they make it incredibly difficult for people to build connections with countries, um, to see it as anything more than just pain and suffering. And in Uganda's case, you know, they had been enjoying an increase in tourism revenue, but then the film came out and for the first time in, you know, about five years, they saw a drop in their tourism revenue um, because, you know, you don't want to go to a country where you believe that it's being completely overrun by a single warlord. Deepo, I know you're not against charitable initiatives entirely, mm -hmm. but uh, you also are, um, well, you have mixed feelings about celebrity activists like Geldof and Madonna, don't you? What's important is to think how you're doing it. You know, there are wonderful people who work in aid agencies who genuinely want to see a better world. And I think it's important that, you know, we, we maintain that in our lives. The, the, the point is to always think whether you're causing more harm than good. Um, and the example I give in the book is to, if you're wondering, you know, what side of this, uh, you know, how to, how to, engage with this issue, you know, think about how you might act in your own country, you know, think about if you were to go to a homeless shelter in Sydney, you know, would you, um, you know, would you stop everyone there and ask them to take a photo with you and post a picture on your Instagram with someone else's child, you know, that's something that you, people don't do, but, you know, when they come to Africa, they think that it's, it's appropriate. Um, and so I think, you know, with, with these celebrity backed campaigns, you know, what we've seen historically is that they've been able to garner a huge amount of attention, um, but not necessarily in the right ways. And I think it's important that we take stock and say, look, if, if, if we want to do good anywhere in the world, we need to make sure that we do so in a way that doesn't cause more harm than good. We've done a few programs in recent years about uh, the appropriation, the stealing of uh, mm -hmm. African cultural material. We've talked about the Benin bronzes and, and so forth. I hadn't realised that 90% of Africa's material cultural legacy is still being kept outside the continent as much as that. It's a shocking, unbelievable statistic that even every single time I think about it, you know, it 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 fills me with such anger. Um, but yes, you know, throughout the colonial era, artifacts were were stolen from from the continent. And one thing that I want to, you know, I want people to take away from this book is that it it wasn't as if the theft was something that happened, you know, decades and decades and decades ago. It's an ongoing theft. You know, the reason why. The artifacts were taken then was because they were of great material worth. Um, and that's the exact same reason why the artifacts are, are still being kept. And there's no reason why this ongoing theft should continue. 
um, you know, African countries would would happily loan back a considerable amount of their artifacts, you know, on their own terms. I think that's the key thing. Macron has made some gestures, hasn't he? Yes, he has, and um, you know, it was it was through um, you know France's initiatives that we were able to to best understand the depth of that um, ongoing theft. You know, uh, unfortunately, um, the the major uh, museums, especially here in Europe, haven't done enough yet to return these artifacts. Um, about eight hundred, you know, the the British Museum holds about eight hundred Benin bronzes that are never on display. You know, they're just kept in that's, the bowels of the museum. That's a double crime, isn't it? Yeah, it's 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 horrendous. It's it's you know they're they're just they're just there in um, in storage, you know, and, and this is and so occasionally you'll hear in the news, you know, one or two are being returned, you know, but we're talking about as you said, ninety percent of the continent's material cultural legacy, um, thousands and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of items um, that are being kept from uh, the countries that own them. I, I used to be, perhaps I'm still on it, a, a committee for the restitution of the so-called Elgin marbles to Greece. But the, the arguments that museums use are so tendentious, are so ridiculous. They are, they are absurd. Um, they make no sense whatsoever. And I, I think the thing is, you know, they, they like when they were taken originally and now, you know, they realise that the power and they have the power imbalance. You know, African countries are obviously not going to uh, storm the British Museum to get them back. So they don't really need to make a lot of effort to try and engage in a real way with with these African countries. You know, I think what you need is uh, people to to really start to push back and to push back against their politicians to say, you know, this ongoing theft is simply wrong. Tell me about the uh, Robin Hood of restitution who does sort of go in and uh, just take things back. Yeah, there have been there have been a couple of examples um, of this, but um, you know, there's there's a Congolese activist who has for for a, a while now has he he you know, he he doesn't so much take them back. It's it's more of a um, it's it's more of a symbolic move where he'll you know he'll he'll stand in um, the middle of. Uh, he'll stand in the middle of a museum, he'll make a, a big announcement in a speech, uh, he'll grab the items and then he'll give, you know, he, he then gives museum security plenty of time to, to arrest him. Um, but, you know, the, these, are the, these are the frustrations of this ongoing discussion laid bare. Um, it's, in, it's incredibly, incredibly difficult. I guess the, the Black Lives Matter protests uh, must have been a bit of an incentive for people to uh, behave better. They were certainly meant to shift the discussion, and I think that they did an incredible amount of work in shifting the discussion. You know, we've seen in, in Belgium statues of King Leopold, um, who, you know, he was responsible for the death of half the population of the Democratic Republic of Congo when he was um, in charge of the region. Um, it is, it has always haunted me. It has to be, you know, second only to the Holocaust in its horror. It, it's, it's, un, it's sort of, it's almost unspeakable horror. You know, he, he had, he, he'd never once stepped foot in Africa for his entire life. He never would step foot in, in Africa. Um, and he, he took charge of a, a gigantic region of Central Africa he then quickly realized that it was incredibly expensive to run. So he put previously free people to work as slaves 
um, to feed the growing rubber industry around the world. And as a result of that slavery, you know, half the population, about 10 million people died in, in his short reign. And, and yet there are statues of him and, and roads and buildings named after him um, in Europe. Tell me about Jamie Oliver's um, unintentional <laughs> act of folly. Yes, uh, Jamie got himself involved um, right in the middle of, of a long-standing uh, battle called the Jolof Wars. Um, many Western African countries have their own version of a dish called Jolof rice. As, as I say in the book, I'm not neutral, so I will declare Nigeria is the best right now. Um, but J- Jamie uh, decided to do his own version of the dish. Um, and, you know, it's a dish that means a lot to uh, many pe- millions of people across the region. So people reacted with, uh, with a mixture of anger and disgust as he, uh, as he probably took it a little bit too lightly. Um, his, his version didn't seem to resonate with, with anyone. Um, but the Jolof Wars really is just, it's, it's, it's a joyful rivalry across the region. And I wanted to talk about it because it offers a really great example um, of, you know, both literally and sort of like theoretically this idea that, you know, African countries have their own flavors and their own seasonings. Um, and food culture is really one really great way of bringing that to light. Deepak, what are some of the important things happening on the continent we don't hear enough about you? You mentioned, for example, the mobilization of people power. Absolutely. You know, we're seeing an incredible amount of youth-led activism throughout the region. Um, Firstly, you know, people are making huge strides and trying to define the future of their countries for themselves. Um, And I think that it's such an important wave that we're seeing around the region um, that shows, you know, Africans are not just helpless people. Um, Each individual country will set its own futures. Um, and I think that that's, you know, one example, but we're seeing it in everything from culture to politics to tech. Um, you know, the, the region is leading in, is leading in so many ways and is, is adding its voice to so many different movements. And well, one of the movements I know it's uh, very active in is, um, is climate change. We did a program where we talked to a, a young Ugandan woman who uh, made the point that while uh, Africa contributes a minuscule percentage of emissions, it is leading the fight in many ways. Absolutely. Um, We're seeing that in so many countries who are investing uh, in clean energy, um, you know, and and as you said, you know, Africa is, it's completely a negligible amount, it's contributing a negligible amount um, to global warming, but it's seeing a huge amount of impact. Um, We're seeing a rise in a number of uh, really, really terrible extreme climate weather events across uh, southern and eastern Africa. Um, and I think, you know, that's one thing that we, we really, really need to get a hold of um, across the world, you know, because a lot of African countries are really, really suffering from the impacts of climate change. And they're doing their best to contribute to trying to push back against uh, global warming. Tell me about uh, Nollywood, the second largest movie industry in the world. Nollywood is a great example of how important it is for African countries to be given the platforms to tell their own stories. Uh, Nollywood has grown to become the second largest film industry in the world because of how wonderful it is at telling the stories of Nigerians. Um, It's specifically for the Nigerian film 
uh, industry, but it also is spread across the region because people just love how uh, how warm the stories is, how true the stories are to Nigerian culture. Um, and you know, we've seen that grow into into other industries like Afrobeats and and how impactful uh, musicians like you know Burner Boy and Wizkid are across the world because when you start to see African countries depicted in their own accents and in their own ways, people really connect with that. You know, you don't have to just be Nigerian to appreciate the music and the, and the films, you know? And and so that success has come from uh, starting to really appreciate the, frequencies of individual countries and that's where the success of Nollywood is, is, is really grown from. I grew up in an Australia with where the film industry, the local film industry, had been destroyed by the oligopoly of uh, Hollywood and and Britain and uh, we had exactly the same problem. We, Our kids had no local heroes. Their heroes yeah. were Americans. They never heard an Australian accent from the screen. Yeah. Yeah, and we we saw that you know when when I was younger, it was certainly something similar. You know, um, musicians and and films didn't really depict the the local culture. You know, but then Nollywood stepped into that gap, and the success of it. Uh, you know, they they've 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 signed recent deals with Netflix, and it just shows that you know varied depictions of an African country can be successful and can and is incredibly meaningful to to people. Um, and so it's so important that we have those depictions again in the future. And on that happy note, I thank you for coming on the little program. Deepo Falloyan is a senior editor at Vice and his debut book is Africa is Not a Country, Breaking Stereotypes of Modern Africa and it's published by Penguin Random House. Thanks, Deepo. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute privilege to be here. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.